don't want to get too close to you, but moderately close. All right. Good to see each of you today. I've enjoyed my uh, time during the week in the book of Proverbs, and it's been a blessing to me, and I hope to you as well. Uh, Again, a proverb is a brief, pithy, insightful statement about life, human nature. Uh, In the Bible, we have laws, we have promises, we also have proverbs. Uh, For instance, laws are commands that uh, we're supposed to do. Uh, Promises are guarantees about what God will do. And uh, proverbs are descriptions of the way in which life generally works, but not without exception. Let me give you a little example of each, okay? Pretty sophisticated audience, so this won't be hard for you to figure out, but uh, I was going to give you a little quiz, but I knew you'd get them all right, so I'm just going to tell you, okay? Uh, Deuteronomy says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. This would be a law. Everyone on the face of the earth is to love God that way, no exceptions. A Roman says, nothing can separate us from the love of God. This would be a promise. God promises that nothing, not even death itself, will be able to separate the people of God from the love of God. And then there are Proverbs. Uh, For instance, a generous man will prosper. Are there exceptions? And of course, the answer is yes. Not all generous people will necessarily prosper with respect to life here on earth. So Proverbs themselves aren't guaranteed formulas for success. They're simply wise observations about kingdom life that normally work out. Okay, So Proverbs demands that you think. One of the things you can't do with the book of Proverbs is speed read your way through it. Other than it's just like Teflon, it'll just flow right off of your brain. You've got to think about it, you've got to ponder it, you've got to work it through your mind, come up with an example or two. That's what you have to do with this particular book. It's not narrative literature, it's not a story. It's, uh, it's a, something that demands that we get into it and think about it. And a lot of people like it because of the pithy statements, but a lot of people stay away from it because they don't understand it. It just takes some time. It demands that you think. Let me give you an example of that. Proverbs 24, verse 27 says this, Finish your outdoor work and get your field ready. After that, build your house. Now, in that particular economy, outdoor work, like farming, was income-producing. House building, on the other hand, was income-draining. And so the idea behind the proverb itself would be, listen, live in a tent, live in a little small shack for a while, farm the land, get some money, and when you have the money, build the house. It's the idea of don't spend money you don't have. Now, if Solomon had been living in Orange County today, uh, he would have said, listen, make sure you have a job before you buy a Jaguar, okay? So that's the idea behind it here. Another aspect of the proverbial literature is that they can contradict each other, and this is true of some of our English proverbs as well. For instance, look before you leap 
is a proverb. Versus, he who hesitates is lost. Contradictory. How about this one? Opposites attract. Versus, birds of a feather flock together. Opposites. How about this one? Absence makes the heart grow fonder. Versus, out of sight, out of mind. Right, got that one right. Now, Proverbs 26, verse 4 says this. Just listen. Don't answer a fool according to his folly, or you'll be like him. And the very next verse says, answer a fool according to his folly, or he'll be wise in his own eyes. So what do I do? Do I argue with an unreasonable person, or is it better off to avoid the discussion altogether? And the answer is yes. (laughs) You know, uh, Sometimes you answer a fool, and sometimes you don't answer a fool. Now, I've done a fair amount of marital counseling over the years as a pastor, and there have been a few times when, say, a spouse, a husband or wife will come into my office, and they'll say, my, my spouse has been unfaithful. Uh, he or she has had an affair. Uh, what does the Bible say? Should I stay or should I leave? And uh, I've responded to them. I says, well, the Bible doesn't say that you must stay. The Bible doesn't say that you must leave. Uh, you have a right to stay. You have a right to leave. And uh, they'll come back and say, well, does that mean there's no right or wrong answer to my situation, my current situation? And I'll say, no. Uh, there certainly is a right response to your situation. It may be good for you to leave. It may be good for you to stay. Uh, It may be foolish for you to leave. It may be foolish for you to stay. Uh, the, The real question is, do you know your heart? Do you know the heart of your spouse? Because three years from now, one answer will have proven to be wise and the other will have proven to be foolish. You see, Proverbs just have a limited slice of reality, and people can err in opposite directions on any given choice. So when we talk about Proverbs, we're talking about enrolling in God's school of wisdom. And those who learn wisdom will be inclined to make good decisions. Those who don't learn wisdom will be inclined to make poor decisions, bad decisions. Now, Our blueprint for today, all of that was reviewed, so the sermon hasn't really started yet, but right now, uh, our blueprint for today is Proverbs chapter 2, and it's under the title, as mentioned earlier, by Solomon, Wisdom That Revives. Now, there's an old, old hymn that maybe only a couple of you will even remember in this room, and it's called, Every Day with Jesus is Sweeter Than the Day Before. Now, that hymn has fallen into disuse, and the reason is good. It's because it's not true. Uh, Every day with Jesus is not necessarily sweeter than the day before. Uh, David knew all about that, and it's a continual refrain in many of his lament psalms. It's just down in the dumps, and earlier he was higher than a kite, He felt the goodness of God, and he felt just the weight of the world on his own shoulders and his own depravity. Uh, There are some days with Jesus where we get so down and so doggone discouraged that we can't even move. 
And David also said, you know what? The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. And if the Christian life were one steady ascent upward, without any dips in our affection for Jesus, then why do we need reviving? You know, he said in Psalm 23, which we looked at a little while back, it says, he leads me beside quiet waters. Good thing. He restores my soul. You know, why is it that we always need our soul restored? You know, that's a, just a part of the Christian life. It's just bound up in the ongoing process of restoration and renewal. Now, Solomon here in this passage offers three truths about wisdom. And uh, I've written them down for you in your handout. Um, I'd like to go through them right now. The first uh, truth about wisdom that Solomon gives us is wisdom is hard won. So seek it. And let me begin reading in verse 1, down through verse 5. It may be on the screen behind me. It certainly is. Great. My son, if you'll receive my words and treasure my commandments, if you'll make your ear attentive to wisdom and incline your heart to understanding, if you'll cry for discernment and lift your voice for understanding, if you'll seek her as silver and search for her as for hidden treasures, then you'll discern the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. Now, earlier in chapter 1, we read these words. Wisdom shouts in the street. How long, O naive ones, will you love being simple-minded? Turn to my reproof, and I'll pour out my spirit on you. So wisdom clamors to be heard. And when you get wisdom, you'll know the fear of the Lord. I see you'll both fear the Lord and know the Lord. And the fear of the Lord is reverence, because God is holy. To know the Lord is intimacy, because God is love. And what scripture is, is the fertile soil that acquaints us with both God's holiness and God's love. Now in the summer, let me illustrate. In the summer of 71, uh, Suzanne and I had uh, finished our undergraduate degree, and I was living in Orange County, and I went south uh, to work in a church in San Diego with high school and college students. She went north and became a staff member of Mount Hermon Christian Conference Center there in the Santa Cruz Mountains. And Suzanne and I, we had been pretty good friends through college and kept up with each other somewhat sporadically. Uh, to be honest with you, she had to work her way through a couple of boyfriends before she finally saw the light. <laughs> but, uh, but nevertheless, our, our correspondence stepped up a couple of levels um, through mail uh, when she was at Mount Hermon and I was in San Diego. And when I received a letter from her, I didn't respond, boy, I hope I have time to read this thing this week. Nor did I open it up and read the first paragraph and then say, well, I'll save it for tomorrow, the next one for tomorrow. And I read every letter that she wrote the very hour that I received it. And uh, sometimes I read it several times. You know, I, I pondered every word. I considered punctuation. Uh, 
I contemplated hidden meanings. I wonder if she would have said the same thing to somebody else. So in one moment, I was blissfully perched on a cloud. The next moment, I was miserably huddled behind the eight ball. Just the way it worked. Now, let me make a hard transition here. The scriptures, the proverbial literature, the Old and the New Testament is God's love letter. And we're to treasure it, read it, make it a part of our own moral fiber. So wisdom is hard won. Just seek it. Stay after it for your entire life here on earth. The second one is this. Second major point. Wisdom is God-given, so receive it. Beginning in verse 6. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of justice. He preserves the way of his godly ones. Then you will discern righteousness and justice and equity and every good course. Two observations. First of all, to know the Lord is to know how to live because out of his mouth comes wisdom and understanding. And second, there are a couple of very significant terms in verse 7. Let me read it again. God gives wisdom to the upright. And that wisdom becomes a shield to those who walk in integrity. Wisdom or I should say upright and integrity, which simply means this, that part of success in life is always going to be linked to character. And that's why lovers of wisdom are called godly ones in the scriptures, in verse 8 of actually our scripture. See, whatever it is that you're most yoked to, that is going to become your source of wisdom. If you're yoked to Christ, then your source of wisdom is going to be reliable. If you're yoked to the things of this earth, then your source of wisdom is not going to be reliable. It's going to be unreliable. For instance, if the most important thing in your life happens to be money, then there will be a wisdom that emanates from that. You may take a job, not because it fits your giftedness, but because it fattens your wallet. Uh, If the most important thing in your life is career success, then status will govern the major decisions of your life. When you come to a fork in a road, you may choose work over Sabbath rest, or work over family, or work over friendship. If the most important thing in your life is parenthood, then you end up living through your children. And uh, living through your children is one of the preeminent forms of self-love. Because it, 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 you're, you're, guiding in a ch- you're, you're pushing your children in a way that fulfills you, not necessarily them. Uh, they'll eventually turn on you. Parenthood is a good thing. But if you make parenthood the king of your life, that in reality you're going to destroy it. Now here's the point. Only God can bear the weight of being the king of your life. 
If you or I make any other aspect of this world, the king, the ruling authority, the thing that most influences us in this life, then we're going to be crushed under the weight of no expectations. We're going to be crushed under the weight of unmet expectations. Let me give you the third point here. Wisdom is a moral safeguard, so live it. Verses 10 and 11. Wisdom will enter your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Discretion will guard you. Understanding will watch over you. See, when wisdom and knowledge become an acquired taste, it'll make the interest of evil men alien to you. Now, those evil men are described in verses 12 to 15. Understanding will deliver you from the way of evil from the man who speaks perverse things, from those who leave the paths of uprightness to walk in the ways of darkness, who delight in doing evil and rejoice in the perversity of evil, whose paths are crooked and who are devious in their ways. See, the crowning point of depravity is simply this. It's delighting in evil, rejoicing in perversity, and cheering those on who join in that with you. Crowning point of depravity. Now, our text concludes by saying that wisdom will also deliver us from the evil woman. And they're out there. Verse 16. Wisdom will deliver you from the strange woman, from the adulteress who flatters with her lips, that leaves the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. For her house sinks down to death and her tracks lead to the dead. None who go to her return again, nor do they reach the paths of life. One of the scarier portions of scripture in all of the Bible. You know, we're going to meet this woman, woman I should say, in some weeks to come. First nine chapters of the book. So I want to just limit to just a few, limit today, just a couple of general thoughts about this thought here. First, both men and women can become sexual predators. Uh, second, the woman sheds light on three traits that characterize illicit behavior. First, it's personal selfishness. Second, it's marital desertion. And third, it's spiritual betrayal. Now, personal selfishness is bound up in the phrase, she flatters with her words. Flattery is telling the truth for personal gain. In this case, it's a prostitute who's interested in money but not love. In other cases, it could be a casual friend seeking a one-night stand without commitment. You know, the Bible doesn't say don't have sex before marriage or outside of marriage because it's degrading. It's not. The Bible says don't have sex outside of marriage because it produces a one flesh relationship without a commitment to oneness in every other area of life. So sex is designed to be redemptive. It's a median, medium of getting outside of yourself and extending the light and pleasure within the matrix of marital love. Uh, marital desertion is bound up in the phrase, she leaves the companion of her youth. 
And the term companion denotes a close, intimate companion. In this case, it would be her husband. In other words, she's dumping her husband and going independent is what the proverb is saying. You know, in Exodus chapter 20, you have that record of God giving the Ten Commandments to Moses when he was on Mount Sinai. And among those commandments are included in the, these four that I want to mention or highlight today. Uh, your should, you know, thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, and thou shalt not commit adultery. And each one of those four things reflect uh, personal rights of every human being on the face of this earth. You see, everyone has a right to life, and when we murder, we violate that right. Everyone has a right to property, and when we steal, we violate that right. Everyone has a right to reputation. When we bear false witness, when we slander, we violate that right. And everyone has a right to family. And when we commit adultery, we violate that right. See, the essence of marriage is simply exclusivism. And that means that sex outside of marriage violates the rights of the present or future spouses of both parties. It's a predatory invasion of the home. Spiritual betrayal is bound up in the phrase, she forgets her covenant with God. And this is important here because sex itself is designed to cultivate an expectation of what glory will be like. One of the metaphors that describe the people of God is that we are the bride of Jesus Christ. Uh, we, we belong to him. And C.S. Lewis ties the two of them together and makes a brilliant comment, as you would well expect, but this is the one that probably of all of the things that he said is the most profound. And this is what he says. Sex in permanently committed relationships is a blend of affection and loyalty that prepare us for the joy of being united to Christ. In other words, there's a heavenly element to earthly sex. It's just a spot-on quote. You see, when a, husband and his when a husband and a wife are holding each other in that Romeo and Juliet moment, and they say, man, we've arrived, they're absolutely wrong. Because their intimacy with one another, your intimacy with your spouse, points to an even greater intimacy in glory. And a, an illicit union that violates the marital bond actually violates the eschatological argument to which sex actually points. You know, Sigmund Freud who said this. Spiritual longings reflect sexual desires, Sigmund Freud. The Bible turns it around and says sexual desires reflect the greater spiritual longings. You see, we all need somebody who's supremely beautiful to say, I give myself to you. And that's the gospel love of Jesus Christ when he died on the cross in our place. And to know the spousal love of Jesus Christ takes all of our other desires and puts them in their place and also reflects their power the best. See, if Christ is our, 
if Christ is our supreme desire more than anything else, then everything else will fall into place. And when that's squared away, we'll have the ability to be true to ourselves and at the same time honor the Lord in the way in which we live our life. Boy, did I finish soon today. This is my gift to you, okay? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for uh, the truthfulness uh, of the Bible and the way that it can guide us into truth and keep us from folly and uh, destroying our own lives and the lives that those that we influence. And uh, I pray, Father, that uh, somehow in the course of our working through some of this proverbial literature that we'll all be inspired by your Spirit of God to do what you've called us to do because therein lies ultimate happiness on our own part and uh, the beauty of what it means to be a Christian and belong to the family of God. Uh, life on earth is short, and uh, we who are up a little bit uh, realize that it's moving along at a mock speed. And we pray, Father, that in the course of the years that you uh, have uh, left for us, that uh, we would be more, in, more ignited to serve Christ, to love Christ, to honor Christ, to spread the beauty of Christ, to uh, give our Savior all the glory uh, and that he deserves, and even more than that, Father. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.